Welcome to this special episode of Composer Quest. I'm your host, Charlie McCarran, a composer in Minneapolis, and I was recently invited to a special talk called I've Written a Song, Now What Do I Do? And in this talk, Kevin Bowe, who is a multi-platinum Grammy-winning songwriter, talks about music publishing and explains everything he knows about getting your music into TV shows, films, and he explains how to get the biggest piece of the music royalty pie that you can. It was a really entertaining and informative talk by Kevin, so I hope you enjoy it. Kevin Bowe's music, like this song, In Too Deep, can be found at kevinbowe.com, spelled B-O-W-E. Thanks to Ellen Stanley at the Minnesota Music Coalition for putting this talk on and for inviting me to come in with my recorder. They have these free music business talks once a month, so you can check that out at mnmusiccoalition.org. This is episode 51 of Composer Quest. You can check out the rest at composerquest.com or on iTunes. Just search for Composer Quest. Now, on to Kevin's talk. Welcome to the kickoff of our workshop Wednesdays presented by the Minnesota Music Coalition. My name is Ellen Stanley, I'm Executive Director of the Minnesota Music Coalition, and we are a statewide nonprofit supporting independent musicians of all, all genres, uh, helping give artists the tools they need, both creative and business skills they need, and the resources they need to have successful careers in music. So, um, uh, in that vein, we're kicking off these monthly workshops. Uh, around the Twin Cities. We're going to be alternating between Minneapolis and St. Paul. Um, so next one's, which is always going to be the third Wednesday of the month. So the next one will be, ooh, I meant to write that down before I came up here. It's October 16th. I'm doing that off the top of my head. So uh, The third Wednesday will be 6.30, 7.30. And it, I, we think it's going to be at IPR, but we'll be letting you know. But the topic we're very excited about is going to be about being a sideman. So this will be a more creative workshop, and we're going to have... Um, sort of the art of uh, supporting other musicians as well as sort of your changing role if you are going from leading to side or vice versa. So we'll have a lot of different artists in the community talking about that. But right now I want to turn it over to uh, Mr. Kevin Bowe. And Kevin is uh, a fantastic songwriter, producer, musician. He's uh, He knows what he's talking about. He's written songs that have been picked up by such big names as Etta James and Johnny Lang and so he's going to talk about uh, sort of the, the business side of songwriting again. Written a song, now what do I do? Kevin, tell us what we should do. <laughs> um, well, first I'll give you a little background. Uh, I teach uh, a little bit at IPR in downtown Minneapolis, which is a lot easier to navigate than downtown St. Paul. Um, but uh, I thought this thing started at 6, and so I was just like... Uh, I thought I was late, and I was just running down the street to get here. Um, but uh, the first, when I first day of class every quarter at IPI, I always tell the, uh, my new students a little bit about my background because I've been to some of these things where the person speaking, you're like, where the hell did they get this guy? This guy's a moron. So I'm not here to toot my own horn. I'm here to help you guys. But um, I thought I'd tell a little bit about my story so that you can answer the question of why the hell should I listen to this guy? Um, I grew up in the western suburbs. I picked up a guitar. I'm going to go fast through this because 
I've heard this one before, and I know how it ends. Um, I picked up a guitar when I was 13, and uh, never even, it's not that I didn't think I could be a songwriter, it honestly never even occurred to me, because there was all these great songs by the Rolling Stones and the Who, and so why would you need to write more songs? I just never even thought of it. I grew up in, you know, like I just wanted to be a guitarist in a rock band. I wasn't in a singer-songwriter mentality at all. I didn't sing, I didn't write, I just played guitar. But um, I, after high school, I moved uh, downtown Minneapolis. It was a very exciting time to live around here because uh, for a few years there, um, uh, the Twin Cities were the musical center of the universe. Because on one hand, in the very early 80s, you had Prince kind of changing the world of music with his stuff. And on the other side of things, you had the replacements in Husker Du, uh, the two and kind of the Beatles and the Stones of American uh, second wave punk rock, changing the world with their music. So it was a very exciting time. There's a lot of record labels coming here to scout bands and stuff like that. And uh, I was in a band. I only started writing and singing, well, because I was in a punk rock band uh, and we weren't very good. But you didn't have to be very good in the early 80s to have a punk rock band. There's only like a thousand people into punk rock around here. And so those people would come and see your band. Plus the drinking age was 18. So you do the math. Remember, we could play the Uptown Bar in the early to mid 80s on a Wednesday night, and we were kind of a sucky band and make 500 bucks on a Wednesday night because the bars were full every night because there was no internet, TV, there's no cable TV, and uh, drinking age was 18. Where, you know, where would you be? <laughs> so I actually uh, quit drinking and doing drugs when I was uh, in 1979 when I was 18. So when I tell you this stuff, you can trust me because I'm the only one who remembers everything. And it's a curse. <laughs> but um, we, I had a, there was this punk rock band, and one of our more popular songs was called I Don't Want to Join the Army. And our lead singer who wrote it uh, quit the band to join the army. <laughs> so I realized I better start learning how to write and sing because lead singers are flakes and they will always break your heart. So um, it took me a long time. I kind of started writing relatively late in life. A lot of great songwriters start writing way earlier than I did started writing when I was about 21, and I probably, it was probably about four or five years before I wrote any, any song that I thought was even halfway good. Um, so right about at the age where you're starting to question your commitment to music, you know, I'm going to my, I remember going to my 10-year high school reunion, and there's 28, 28 years old, and this guy's like, well, I'm a doctor, well, I'm a lawyer. And you're like, well, I just got back from Madison where I drove last night to play for, I, I made $10. And they gave us beer, which I can't drink. <laughs> so I was kind of at the end of my little tether, and I had a lucky break. I was doing a, I had met this, uh, I had a gig at Fine Line in Minneapolis in 87, right when it opened, and uh, met the owner, and we hit it off pretty well. We've been uh, married for over 20 years, which in the music business, it's like dog years. We've been married for 140 years. Um, and uh, so she, uh, it worked out great for getting gigs. <laughs> if you want to get gigs, Sleep with the owner of the club. That is just, that's the best advice you'll get all day. She has sold out her interest in the fine line in 1990 and was hired by Prince to build a club down the street uh, called Glamslam. So I used to get some sweet opening gigs there that I didn't deserve, uh, but again, sleeping with the owner. Um, and I was doing one of those gigs opening for some band, and my band was, you know, like not big, not horrible, but not very successful either. And there was a producer in the audience named David Z. Um, he's like the other Jewish guy who lives in Minnesota. And uh, so we connected across the room and had a moment. No, he, uh, he liked my band and he came, approached me after the show and said, I'd love to hear a tape of some of your songs. I'm a record producer and I'm 
I'm always producing records. I need good songs for those records. And, you know, life was so different before the internet. I really do think it's easy to forget because there's so much garbage on the internet, how much it has... I wouldn't say that people are smarter now, but we sure are better informed, you know? Because none of us back then, even people who were making money on publishing, didn't, I didn't know what music publishing was. So when he said he wanted to maybe use one of my songs on some record, I knew that would be cool, but I didn't know why it would be cool. Um, it, it, interesting sidebar, the reason Prince is rich and not bankrupt today is Prince wastes a lot of money with capricious decisions and he tours, you know, and, and he sells a lot of tickets, but he also, it's an expensive tour. You know, it's not like he's staying at Motel 6. And um, the reason he has so much money is because he owns all of his publishing. And the reason he owns all of his publishing is because his first manager, Owen Husney, didn't know what publishing was. So when he got signed to Warner Brothers and they were negotiating the deal, the A&R guy from Warner Brothers kept on calling Owen Husney and saying, what about the publishing? We want to give him a, do a publishing deal with Prince. We want to own his publishing, the publisher shit, you know. And uh, Owen didn't know what publishing was, but he didn't want to sound dumb. That's our whole thing in Minnesota. We just don't want to look stupid when we're talking to someone from LA or New York. It's hard. So he kept on not answering that question, not returning that call, and they got the record deal done, and Prince held on to all his publishing, and that's why Prince has so much money, because he never sold off of any of his publishing. He owns, I'll get into this in a little bit, but he owns 100% of his music publishing, which is worth a lot, lot, lot of money. So I didn't know what it was either. So uh, this David Z guy liked one of my songs, and he went out to produce a record for this um, young kid blues guitar player named Kenny Wayne Shepherd that nobody ever heard of. It was his first record for Warner Brothers. And uh, he took one of my songs I'd written and put it on the record, and the record uh, went gold right away. And I was like, wow. And um, I, in the meantime, I was getting more interested in songwriting because my band thing, I wasn't really getting very far with that. And um, so there was a record that came out in 87 called, by John Hyatt called Bring the Family. And I just loved this record, and I loved the guy's story. I loved it that he wasn't good-looking and he wasn't young, but people still liked him. Since I was turning, like, 30, that really, I thought that was really cool. And uh, I loved the record. And I looked in the back of the record. This is true. And under every song, it said, Published by Bug Music. And I thought, well, I don't know what publishing is, but I bet you Bug Music is in Hollywood, because that's where all the stuff goes happens. So back then, there's no internet, so how do you find a long-distance number back then? You call 555-1212, long-distance information. You remember. And I said, is there you know, a number for Bug Music in Hollywood? And they said, here it is. And I was like, score, I was right. So I called Bug Music, and I said, did someone answer the phone? I said, I don't know what music publishing is, but I know that you guys publish all these songs on this John Hyatt record, and, and I want to be like him, so I think we should work together. And um, I think this might have been right around the time that damn movie Fargo came out. So every time you were calling LA or New York, they'd put you on speakerphone, listen to this guy, hey, say wood chipper, you know. And they laughed at me and said, and they, they kept on passing me down the line on the phone to lower and lower people at the company. And they finally put someone on, a woman named Connie. And she wasn't even in creative, which is like the A&R of publishing companies. She uh, was a numbers cruncher. Um, but luckily for me, she was Canadian. And as everyone knows, the Canadians are nicer and overall better people than we are. And so she was very nice and she said, well, send me a, send me a tape. I'd like, like to hear what your songs are all about. <laughs> and, um, so I sent her a tape 
And she actually signed me to a publishing deal. She signed me, and I'm going to talk about the different kinds of publishing deals in a second here. She signed me to an, a, an admin deal, which means that I owned all my own copyrights, and they just their job was to collect all the money from my songs out there for a 15% commission. That was an easy job because I didn't have any songs out there making money. It was a completely meaningless deal. It was a piece of paper. It took them an hour of labor to do. My theory is if you work at Bug Music back then, it was a kind of a grassroots company. Now it's owned by BMG, so it's not grassroots anymore. Um, if you work there, they allowed you one pity signing a year. And I think I was her pity signing. But right after she signed me, I got a gold record. So she looked like a, they just loved her at Bug Music. Um, so she got an offer from another publishing company owned by Lieber and Stoller, a couple of Jewish songwriters from Brooklyn, old guys that the first hit they ever wrote was Hound Dog when they were 17 for Big Mama Thornton and then Elvis Presley. And uh, they wrote Yakety Yak and uh, Spanish Harlem and a bunch of other really great songs. And basically, as long as there's stations like Cool 108 all over the world, uh, Lieber and Stoller's heirs will be all set never have to work a day job. Um, so they hired her to be vice president of their company, and she kind of brought me along with her, and they signed me to my first real co-publishing deal. So I got an advance, I think I was 33, so I picked up a guitar when I was 13, and I quit my day job when I was 33. So as I, I used to tell my students, it's only the first 20 years that are rough after that. So easy going. So I got uh, an advance, uh, I wasn't rich, but I was able to not work a day job and put all my time into songwriting. And I had a lucky break after that. This is really strange coincidence that my first success was with a, a white, underage blues rock boy. And I had this, that was Kenny Wayne Shepherd. I had a gig shortly after that up in Fargo, Minnesota. And the opening act was a white, underage blues rock boy named, uh, this one was really underage, he was 13, his name was Johnny Lang. He'd only been playing for nine months. But when he got up to sound check, at first I was looking at him, I remember he was like 13, so his, his arms and legs were too long for his body. He looked like a, like a colt that was standing up for the first time, and he had this horrible Princess Leia haircut. I was like, this guy, what a dork. And he gets up there to play and sing, and I was like, holy crap. I mean, anyone, you didn't have to be a talent scout to know that this was like an amazing thing, because he sang and played pretty much the way he does now. Um, and uh, we got to be friends, and I remember him and his dad, I was talking to him, and I was like, you know, you should come down to Minneapolis and we can hang out, I'll get you like a Tuesday night gig at Bunkers, a little club on Washington. And, and uh, they were just like, you could get us a Tuesday night gig at Bunkers. <laughs> that was like a huge deal, and I was like, yeah, I think I can swing that. So um, we got to be friends and started writing songs together, and I got Johnny's material, a little board tape, to David Z, my producer friend, and we got him signed to A&M Records, and uh, David produced, and I wrote a couple of songs on this album, came out live, five of that went double platinum, and he got to be a really big deal, and then I wrote four more songs on his second album that went double platinum called uh, Wander This World, and so by then, I had recouped my advance with Lieber and Stoller and was making a, a good living just writing songs. I still didn't know anything. I kind of started to understand music publishing a little bit. I started to learn about how I could buy as a songwriter, learn about things like co-writing and stuff, because they forced me to go to Nashville and co-write with all these Nashville hit makers, which at first was really awkward and intimidating. Um, and then, after, no, then it, it got really fun uh, after a little bit. Um, and so I started getting a reputation in blues, which is weird, because I grew up with punk rock. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if someone 
young opportunities on St. Helen. So um, I got some songs uh, with Etta James, and she won a Grammy on this album that I wrote four songs on, and just really weird stuff. I got a cut with Leonard Skinner. That was weird. Um, and Three Dog Night. And, um, and uh, anyway, at the end of the, right around 2001, 2001 is an important year in the music business because it's the, the year at the major label level that revenues started shrinking after the big boom of the 90s. The 90s were great for the record labels because they, every, you know, dummy that bought Pink uh, Dark Side of the Moon on LP, they got to sell it to them again on CD. That's a good business to be in because they didn't have to pay to record Dark Side of the Moon again. It's like, I'm going to sell you this car and then I'm going to sell you this car, <laughs> you know? So that ended as uh, illegal downloading started kind of catching hold in 2001. So revenues were shrinking, publishing companies were cutting back and uh, Johnny Lang kind of, you know, this is the thing about the tough thing about being an artist and kind of the cool thing about being a writer is that, you know, Johnny Lang's career, he's still making a living in music, a good living and stuff like that, but he stopped selling records. And I, uh, I was able to move on to working with other people, whereas if you're, being Johnny Lang is like being Coca-Cola. If, you know, Joe Coca-Cola that owns a Coca-Cola company can't wake up next week and say, you know, I just, we're going to start making, I just, we're going to make green cans and put root beer in there. They can't do that because it's like, it's Coke. They have to stay the same. It's very rare you get an artist like David Bowie who can like morph from album to album. But anyway, um, all my songwriting gigs kind of dried up around that time. I didn't have any rock stars to write for. I was involved in a couple of projects that didn't end up taking off. So uh, like a lot of people who've managed to stay in this business for a long time, I've learned to wear many hats and I started learning, you know, fear of like going back to a day job was a great motivator. At the age of 40, I learned how to engineer and I learned how to engineer good and I learned how to engineer fast. And uh, I had some good friends that helped me. And I started uh, producing records and mixing records and doing a lot of music for film and TV. Uh, I do a lot of music for instrumental music for ESPN and just weird stuff like that. So I still write, although um, I haven't done as much songwriting like trying to write songs for other artists to cover in the last several years. Uh, it's interesting I'm doing this tonight because I just kind of came to a decision over the last few months that I miss that too much and I'm going back. I'm going to try and do more of that. I'm going to do some LA co-writing trips and Nashville co-writing trips and uh, start getting serious about doing that again. Um, producing is a safer way to make money than songwriting because being a songwriter for a living you're writing for other artists, you know, it's kind of like doing a tour with a band, and every gig you do, you're just working the door, there's no guarantee, because you can write great songs, and then if they don't get cut, you don't get paid, if they get cut, the record doesn't sell, you don't get paid, you know, I mean, there's a lot of ways for it to go south, so, at the time, because <laughs> this is America, when I first, you know, when I first started getting platinum records, I was like, well, this is just how it is now, you know, in America, we confuse gifts with entitlements. You know, I was lucky and I thought I was just good. And it's like, it's like classic MC Hammer. MC Hammer has a hit record and he's like, well, now the next one will be even bigger. And it is, it's even bigger. And they think, well, the next one will be even bigger. Uh-oh. <laughs> so luckily I didn't spend all my money because I don't have any hobbies or anything. I don't really do anything outside of music. Um, uh, I don't, you know, I don't have boats, cars, vacations. None of that stuff means anything to me. So, um... I was able to ride through that and make this transition to being a, uh, an engineer and producer. Uh, and I still write, but um, 
I, I missed the, I think what I miss is the gamble, the hunt. You know what I mean? Even though that's also super painful because you got to remember a successful songwriter, again, I'm speaking specifically as a songwriter who's trying to place songs with other artists. If you get a no 95% of the time, you're incredibly successful. If five out of a hundred songs you write get placed, so think of the, how thick of a skin you have to get. And that part is hard for me. That, I had to develop that over time. It's, you know, when someone says, you know, I don't know, maybe because I was born and raised with, you know, punk rock, but someone says, you know, no, we don't like your song. My tendency is to go, well, you don't like it because you're an idiot. <laughs> that does not go over well. You, you can't, you know, you have to just go back and write another one and say, thank you for listening at all. So um, maybe I'm a little older and uh, hopefully a little more passive aggressive. So I'm um, able to hide my feelings about that. But yeah, my point is you have to be tough. So I'm, um, I'm happy to get back into songwriting, but I thought today, since the topic of this talk is, I've written a song, now what do I do? Um, everyone in here is a songwriter, right? And how many in here are more interested in trying to write songs for other artists? And then how many are just more interested in writing songs for themselves? Okay, because they're two a little bit different. There's some overlap, but there's a little bit different um, material to present on each subject. But there is some overlap. Um, let's start with let's start with money. There's three ways that you make money writing songs. Whether you sing the song or whether somebody else sings the song, there's only three. There's three and only three places where the money comes from. The first is mechanical royalties. Mechanical royalties, the easy way to remember that is that, like mechanical, it's a mechanical object, like a physical object. Although, obviously, that's not true anymore because downloads count. Even though it's an imaginary thing, it's still a thing. Um, mechanical royalties, there's a statutory rate set by the Congress at nine point something cents. So, basically, when someone buys an album that's got one of my songs on it, if I wrote that song alone, and if I don't have a publishing deal, in other words, I own all the publishing on it, like Prince owns his, then you get nine point something cents for every copy it sells. Now that could mean a CD, it could mean a download, it could mean one of those greeting cards where you open up and the song plays, anything, anything with your song on it. Now, how do you get that money? Who collects that money? Well, typically, if you have a publisher, then the the publisher's job is to collect those royalties for you, typically worldwide, although you could have a publishing deal that's US only, um, or you have a publishing administrator. I'll get more into that later, but you can have, you don't have to have a publisher collect your publishing, although that's the most common thing. You could have anyone who knows how to administer publishing. A lot of lawyers will tell you they know how to administer publishing, but that's the thing, are there any lawyers in the <laughs> My son just graduated law school. Um, I'm going to rephrase this. I'm going to say, <laughs> you guys know what I mean. Sometimes people get a law degree and then they're like, I'm a lawyer now, so therefore I'm also a surgeon and an astronaut and I just know everything about everything. But publishing administration is actually kind of a tricky specialized thing. And if you don't know how to do it, then you're going to miss money that's in the corners. You know what I mean? So the safest way to have your publishing collected is to have a publisher do it. If you don't want to give up any of your copyright, like I don't anymore, then what you do is 
do an admin deal with a publisher. Like my first, my career has gone full circle. I started out with an admin deal, where they just take a small commission, that you own all the copyright, to collect all your money. And now I'm back at that, because I, I, don't, I don't need the advance anymore, I don't want to give anything up. One of the reasons I get a little cranky about that is because all the different publishing deals I had, never once, with all, I must have had 50 songs cut by other artists, you know, a few of them big, a lot of them little. Uh, maybe 75 songs used on bigger film and TV things and stuff like that. Um, and never once have I ever gotten a song cut by another artist or a, a, a meaningful film or TV thing because of the efforts of any of my publishers. So basically they ended up to be like futures deals where someone gives you, you know, buys a part of you because you, you're down on your knees and you need the money. You know what I mean? But they were supposed to be out there hustling my stuff. And uh, I remember getting, I, had a, I left all of them on pretty good terms. There's one guy I was going to say, he didn't really didn't do anything. When I signed the publishing deal, he was like, we're going to get you co-writing with Eric Clapton and Jesus. You know, and I was like, well, that sounds good. And, uh, you know, then I, it was a year-long deal and nothing happened at the end. I told him, you know, you couldn't get a song cut if you were in a bag full of broken glass. So uh, that deal went, they went out of business anyway. Um, but you can't rely on publishers for that. I have other friends, though. Gary Lewis from the Jayhawks. His publisher, Warner Chapel, has done a great job with him. Dan Wilson, you know, they also happen to be great writers, you know what I mean? But Dan Wilson, he talks about Chrysalis, his publisher. He loves them. They do a great job with him. And not just now because he's a big deal, but they did a great job with him before he was a big deal. So I just got unlucky with, uh, lucky in love and unlucky with, with, with publishers. But so that's how you collect, the, that's how you get this money. And they, the money comes in every um, six months. The second place the money comes from is performance royalties. Performance royalties are a little weirder. That is money you get for every time one of your songs is performed publicly. And the, obviously the biggest source of performance royalties is radio. But uh, there's other meaningful sources too, like film and TV. I had a song, my biggest film and TV placement was one of my Etta James songs got used on The Sopranos. And uh, it, was, it was a particularly violent episode. Who had, did you guys ever watch that show? Do you remember the story arc with Steve Buscemi and he gets out of jail and he's trying to go straight and live a straight life and he gets a job working for a Korean grocer? And then after about, I don't know, three or four episodes, he freaks out and can't handle it anymore because the Korean's a little bit of a dick to him. And so he grabs the Korean and he's got him down on the ground, he's grabs him by the hair and he's smashing his head into the cement floor of the store. Anyway, um, that's the end of that episode and then my song plays. I remember my mom was so proud. She just loved that show. But uh, performance royalties um, are from radio, film and TV, every time it plays, internet radio, and also public performance like, um, uh, well, when Johnny Lang did some big tours opening for Aerosmith and the Stones and he was playing a lot of my songs, I'd get checks because the, the venues, in this case, like you know, Target Center and, and, and XL, have to pay to, for those songs that are playing, just like if you open up a restaurant and you're doing any kind of good business at all, then BMI and ASCAP, talk about in a second, will show up to sell you the sticker for the door. Because if you've got music playing in your venue, then um, 
they, you have to pay them to use that. Uh, BMI and ASCAP have been around for um, almost 100 years now, and they have never lost a lawsuit. Every year, the small business lobby in Congress tries to get the laws changed so that restaurants and stuff like that can use these songs for free. Every year, BMI and ASCAP came down. The simple truth is, like, we're not saying you have to pay for the music. If you don't want to have the music play, turn it off. Let your patrons listen to each other eat. And they win. There's a great article, if you want to Google it, by my brother, John Bow, J-O-H-N-B-O-W-E, about what it's like to be a collection agent for BMI, like running around these guys that have to go into, like, strip clubs in Biloxi and, and, and collect the BMI money and get it chased out with a guy with a shotgun and stuff like that. So God bless these collection agents. Um, and uh, so those are performance royalties. And you can't say exactly how much you get per play. It's not a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's where art meets science, how they collect these things. Basically, radio stations turn in logs to BMI and ASCAP and the third performance rights holder. And they kind of multiply it out and use fancy algorithms and computer stuff to figure out how much they owe um, each songwriter. Um, but every time, like the Sopranos, I couldn't believe it. I was flipping around the cable the other night and they're still rerunning Sopranos. And I was like, oh! So performance royalties are collected by performance rights organizations or PROs. There are three of them in this country and there's different ones in other countries around the world. Um, the two biggies here in the States are ASCAP and BMI. Don't ask me which one is better. There, I know 20 really smart people who will say, ASCAP is great, BMI sucks. And I know 20 really smart people say the opposite. I was with BMI forever, and I just left them to join the third one, CSAC. The, um, the difference between ASCAP and BMI and CSAC, ASCAP and BMI are both huge. They're also both nonprofit. CSAC is much smaller and it's for-profit. You have to be invited in and they give out advances. ASCAP and BMI, they say they don't give advances, but if you're big enough, they will give an advance. They just, it's like a secret thing. Um, the only reason I left BMI is because all my friends who used to work there, like I said, I kind of got out of the business of writing songs for hire. And in the meantime, because uh, I was busy producing and doing well at it, so I was like, well, screw this, I'm gonna produce. And now I came back to it over the last year, and all my friends had moved on from BMI, and I couldn't get anyone to return my calls. So I uh, terminated. And then they started returning my calls. I got a call from the vice president. Kevin, buddy! And I'm like, too late. Because uh, there was this really nice woman at CSAC uh, that did return my call. That's all it took. <laughs> um, so performance royalties, for some reason, are paid... Um, no, let me remember this. Just... Uh, yeah, every three months, quarterly. Whereas publishing royalties are paid every six months. Um, so performance royalties, your statement comes from you know, I ask that, but it can be just, you know, like, like my own poem, it'll be like this Johnny Lang song from radio in Finland, one set, you know what I mean? But the, it's like 10 or 20 or 30, 40 pages long, so this stuff adds up. And they go, you know, since you, if you're on a copyright, you retain that copyright till 75 years after you're dead. It's life plus 75. So your heirs, your kids, if you love them, <laughs> your girlfriend, if you don't, whatever, whoever you assign it to can collect on that money till 75 years after you're dead. If you're ever watching a movie and it's someone's birthday in the movie, like a low-budget TV movie, and they don't sing happy birthday to you, 
The reason is because they don't want to pay. Because it hasn't been 75 years since the two little old grannies who wrote that song died. Their kids, well, their grandkids, do not work day jobs. Do you own the copyright to the happy birthday song? I wish my dad wrote the happy birthday song. Anyway, um, so that's the second place the money comes from. The third place it comes from is something called sink fees. Sink fees have become more important um, over the last few years because as they say, TV is the new radio. It's easier, much easier to get a song on a TV show than it is on the radio because radio has shrunk over the last few years. But TV, oh my God, think of right now how many TV shows are playing and how many channels are on your cable thing. And they all have music going on behind the talking. You look at the Discovery Channel. Every show has music. Maybe they do it as score music and they just buy it as a word for hire, but oftentimes they license it. So sync fee is a one-time fee paid by the production company uh, for the, um, of a film or TV show uh, to, for permission to use your song. They pay it once. And it's a licensing fee. This is where you hear the term licensing a lot. I want to license my music. That's what this is. So, like, okay, for example, on The Sopranos. Now, a lot of sync, a lot of TV shows, like Viacom, the company that owns MTV and VH1, there's constant crap running on those stations, right? Those reality shows, you know, you know, Dude House or Beach House or whatever it is. And there's tons of, like, little indie rock band songs playing on those. Viacom... 99% of the time doesn't pay a sync fee. They'll say, we want to use your song on Dork House, and there's no sync fee, but every time it airs, you'll get performance royalties. And if you're in a little indie rock band or whatever, then you're going to say yes. So um, the way those sync fees work is it's negotiated, uh, but unless you're U2, negotiating means they say, we'll give you this much, and you go, thank you, OK. Um, I mean, if someone wanted to use one of my songs, I can't imagine my publisher or me at this point would say, you know, no, we want more. You know, it depends on how much they want the song, how big the show is, you know. Um, but again, like I say, if, if, you're, uh, if you're not in U2, then you, probably, you just pretty much take what you get. You know what band I hear more often than any other band right now licensing their songs? Film and TV. I can't believe it. they're popular. Like they can sell on First Avenue, but I bet you half the people in the room here haven't, haven't heard of Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. Whoever does their licensing, that person is amazing. You can't watch a TV show right now. What's that? Black what? Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. My, I like the band. My wife loves the band, and they're really kind of a throwback, like a, kind of a commercial punk band. But they have catchy songs, and they're like kind of stonesy. But I, I mean, I like them, but oh my God, whoever's doing their licensing is a genius. I would like to hire that person. Um, so the way the sync fees work is like this. I'll use the Sopranos thing I had as an example. HBO Films owns the Sopranos. They hear this at a James song, and, that, and they say, um, there's someone at the, that works for HBO Films called a music supervisor. If you ever meet a music supervisor, figure out the right way to kiss their ass because that's, that's the money hose right there. So the music supervisor says, okay, I wanna, we want to use um, this Ed James song. The song uh, was called The Blues Is My Business. Uh, so the music supervisor's job then is to clear the 
title. In other words, do a licensing deal. So the music supervisor needs to find out who owns pieces of this song. The sync fee is also more accurately called a master slash sync fee. There's two entities that get paid for this. Whoever owns the master recording and whoever owns the publishing and writing. Okay, so that Etta James, the, 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 the master sync fee in total for this HBO thing was $75,000. So when I heard about that, I was like, holy mother of God, this is awesome. And then my publisher said, hold on a minute. $75,000, half of that goes to who owns the master. All right, so if Etta James is on RCA Records, who owns the master? RCA Records. Okay, down to 37.5. Then, oops, I co-wrote the song, and I can't be pissed about it because it was the other guy's title. I mean, I wrote a lot of it, but I mean, I, I would be pissed if I wrote the whole song while some other guy sat there, which does happen. But um, he, it was his title, so now we're down to what? Let's say 19 a piece. Still, $19,000, yes. Oh, but whoops, I have a co-publisher deal. So, Lieber and Stolen Music owned 25% of that copyright, so now we're down to like 12.5. So that's what I ended up getting, which is still awesome. But it's even more awesome because the first time it aired and every subsequent time it's ever aired anywhere in the world, I get performance royalties on it, okay? So that's the way master sync fees work. Um, Johnny Solomon, I just produced a new record by a local band called Communist Daughter. Johnny Solomon, and, and this is the main writer in that band, he wrote a song, that, uh, the Communist Daughter has had two songs, he's done Brazen Addict. I think he got like $7,500 a piece for him. That's pretty good. The way they figure out how much to pay, the factors involved are this. Number one, are you you two or not? <laughs> if you're a big band, they know they're gonna have to pay more. If you're an indie rock band, they know you're on your knees and you know that you'll take whatever you get. Second thing is how big and how popular is the show? If it's National Geographic Channel, it's going to be little to nothing on the master sync fee, and it's just going to be performance royalties. Uh, if it's Sopranos, it's going to be big. Third thing is, how long does the song play? Fourth thing is, are people talking over it, or is it like running, no people talking over it? So, that said, this was happy about the HBO thing, the Sopranos thing, because the best place to have your song run in a film or TV is over end title. Nobody's talking, and in my case, they played the whole song. The credits just roll, 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 roll. Um, so those are the three places. The only other way you could make money writing songs is um, if you like do a work for hire. You know what I mean? Where like I don't know. I had some rich guy come up to me once and want me to write a birthday song for his wife. You know what I mean? Which um, that happens, you know. Or the more commonplace thing would I guess be a jingle. But that's often not like songwriting. A lot of jingles are instrumental, you know, where they give you the, the text, the lyric that has to be in it. Does that all make sense? Any questions so far? How much are the performance royalties you How much, say again? Like every time your song plays on the Sopranos, for example, someone, it airs, how much do you collect? Well, that's what I meant. It's kind of an inexact science because, um, you know, I can look at my BMI statements. I don't look at them that closely. I used to when I first got into this, and I was like, oh, it's like porn. Oh, my God, look at that. But now, you know, I, I just kind of, you know, just file them away and just, you know, put the check in the bank. Um, uh, so I don't exactly know. I don't exactly know. Um, it seems like it was, you know, more when it first came out. 
Maybe you get less on reruns, I don't know. Um, but definitely more than if it was on like a, a tiny little show. You know what I mean? Like uh, Sopranos is gonna be more than um, Grey's Anatomy. Grey's Anatomy is gonna be more than National Geographic Channel. I don't know. I don't know. Keep in mind that I'm doing this seminar for nothing, so <laughs> you get what you pay for. There was no cover charge here, so Google it. <laughs> yeah. I am a member of CSAC now. Yes, it's easy to join BMI or ASCAP. You go on their website, they'll you know, pretty much take all comers. Um, there might be a small fee to join. Sometimes you can weasel out of that. And then also their websites, you can weasel out of it. $50. And also their websites are great now because you can register your songs. You know, it'll tell you step by step how to do it. That assigns it a catalog number. It gets in the catalog and then you're set. They make it really easy. They know what radio stations play because radio stations are required to turn in playlists uh, or logs as they're called. And then film and TV, they're, the equivalent of that in film and TV is called cue sheets. So the radio station, I mean the TV shows are required to turn in cue sheets. And if BMI busts them for playing something without turning in a cue sheet, then they can sue them. They don't want to be sued, so they pay. That whole thing is still up in the air. I don't think I'm getting any paid for any of my YouTube stuff. I mean, it's technically illegal for someone to put one of my songs on a YouTube video, but, you know, look at what an idiot Prince looks like when he runs around suing people. You know what I mean? I mean, that whole argument is going to wreck this conversation if we get into that. I'm not one of those guys who's going to pitch a hissy about my songs being used on internet stuff without, permi you know, uh, permission. Somebody wants to cover your song. A lot of people can cover songs now, but they Yeah. Yeah, my choice is I'm going to sit and freak out about it and ruin what's left of my life, or am I just going to be like, oh well. So, like plan B for me. So, if you're a musician covering a song in a that's okay? Yeah, that's, that's okay. Uh, the, the, the club is, that's between the club and BMI. But you're not supposed to put it out on the internet. I, I just had a song cut by Joe Cocker. He made a new record on Sony that came out a few months ago, and nobody even told me. You know, I'm like, Joe! <laughs> no, so I, 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 I called my publisher of that stuff. It's an old catalog of mine. It's 25% of it is owned by BMG. It's BMG Bob Bob. So it's a big corporation. I emailed him two weeks ago, twice, and nobody's gotten back to me. I'm like, did, did, they, did Sony pull a license on this? I'll get to the bottom of it. You know what I mean? And I'm sure, you know, I mean, Joe Cocker doesn't sell a ton of records anymore, so, you know, there'll probably be over time I might make two, three grand off that, you know, which that's sad, because like, to me, it's like, oh my God, Joe Cocker, I tell people that, they're like, he's still alive? Uh, but, you know, um, yeah, I'll have to stay after and make sure he's licensed. Did you have a question, Ellen? Oh, they'll never tell you. It's a non-profit, so they basically spend whatever they have to spend to keep the business running, and then divvy up the rest. But I will tell you that all the people that work at BMI are overworked and underpaid, um, except for the people at the top, and there's only a few people at the top that make a ton of money. But the people I know that you know work at BMI, actually like Donovan in the office is doing the work, they're all, they're angels as far as I'm concerned. <laughs>
It's often a farm team. You work at BMI for a few years and do a really good job, and then you get hired by a publisher or a label you know, to do something where you make more money. A lot of coffee shops and uh, restaurants They'll say you can't play covers. Because they BMI hit them up and they said we're not gonna pay. And then on the other side, there's like, okay, if you want to name names, who wants to name names? I know I do. Um, there's a place in Excelsior called the 318 that I used to play at. And um, one of the reasons I don't play there anymore is because they take out of the money that you they you only get like uh, the, the covers that people play. They don't give you a guarantee. And they take a dollar out of each cover and they said they were using that for BMI charges. And one day I was like, you know, I'm gonna do a little math. And I started figuring out, they're keeping most of that money. They don't turn it over to BMI. And if I was a real asshole, I'd call BMI and say, those guys are stealing money from musicians in your name. You know what I mean? But so it goes both ways. Um, I was just wondering if, Sound Exchange is the, a nonprofit, I believe, that and you can um, join for free. Uh, there's a kind of paperwork involved, but it's not too bad. Yeah. You've got to register your songs, like, like asking for BMI, and they keep track of internet use and, and of your digital. songs. And What's that? Satellite. Satellite airplane as well. Oh, and Satellite Airplay. Uh, the reason why I mentioned this is this is a really easy way to get paid, especially if you're getting mainly played on public radio stations where you might not Tidy song. Tidy song. Nice. Sound and exchange. they won't hold it for you. Um, I think there's some period of time, but even if they'll three years ish. Yeah, the backlog. So if you had a song played even a year ago, they got to be a place to get paid for that. Right. There's one. I'll give you that. Sound exchange is digital recording. Uh, there it comes. Okay. Um, you know, I'm sure it's a songwriting aspect of it. Is sound exchange isn't for writers, it's for master writers? Oh, okay. All right. Good to know. And you had a question? Yeah, if our interest is getting our songs placed on um, TV, film, commercials, but don't have contacts developed, how do we start? Well, you know, it's funny, that's an excellent question. And that world has completely changed in the last few years because as the major publishers and major labels have shrunk and all these, so many people have gotten fired. Many, many, many of these weasels have gotten into the licensing business. And so if you Google music licensing for film and TV, you will come up with literally hundreds of companies that will get your songs, you know, take your songs if they like them or whatever, and uh, pitch them to film and TV. Most of them are doing pitching to those low-level Viacom-type shows and stuff like that. But my philosophy on that is this, and this is, you know, take it or leave it. Um, I don't believe in just about any company that takes money up front from musicians. There are a million of them. Number one, I think they're stupid because if you want to be a ripoff, why would you rip off musicians? They don't have any money. So that's like proving you're an idiot. I mean, it's like, 
let's go rob, you know, Bob's bank that has five bucks in it. That's stupid. Go rob the big bank. Um, a lot of these music licensing houses take money up front. Uh, I don't recommend it. Um, some of them take, I just have a, a, this guy that I'm producing a record for, and he signed with one of these companies in LA, and I think he pays them money up front, and she pays 75% of the publishing. And I'm like, he doesn't listen to I told him, you know. But you know, they, they give you a, a line, well, he just got this song on this show, and blah, 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 blah. Well, that sounds good. Um, he's a doctor, so he actually has the money to spend, but I'm telling him, you know, not to do it. But so, be choosy. You have to s submit to a lot of them until you find someone who actually likes your stuff. And also, on the other hand, there's a flip side to that, which is, and a lot of songwriters ignore this, and it's just, it, 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 it's so sad. You have to make sure that you're writing stuff that's usable on film and TV. You know, there's tons of songs, it's kind of like songwriters who want to write for other artists. So they write songs for themselves, and then they get pissed off and pissed off and pissed off because other artists won't cut their songs. If you want to write, think about, think like a scientist. It's not that complicated. If you want to write songs for other artists, go buy Billboard, look at the top 100. If it's not on the top 100 or 200, why would you buy? It's not, you're not going to make any money anyways. You might as well just write it for yourself. Okay? So look at the top 100. I know this sounds crass and clinical, but I'm just saying. So go with me on this. Cross off all the artists that write their own stuff. If you write just like Tom Petty, then people who write like Tom Petty, artists that, that uh, like Tom Petty, all write their own stuff. John Mellencamp's not going to cut one of your songs. He writes his own songs. Um, Cross off everyone who writes their own songs. Cross off everyone who does music that you hate or never are interested in doing. And, you know, I mean, like, if you hate Beyonce, cross off Beyonce. If you love Beyonce and you think you can write music like that, don't cross it off. And what's left, that's your target. If you write indie rock, don't pitch those songs. What's the indie rock band that does other people's songs? Oh, yeah, that's the one. No one. So... But a lot of writers, they sit there and get really pissed that nobody, it's like being a tailor, a clothing designer, designing clothes that look really good on you and then trying to shove them on somebody else and then being pissed off when they don't want to buy them. Writing songs for other people, you'll probably get into a lot of this in your sideband thing that you're going to do. The thing that it takes is humility. It's not about you, it's about them. I'm writing songs for Eddie James. I'm not writing songs for me. And the way I always did it is I pretend in my head a daydream, I'm a big daydreamer. I pretend that I play guitar, rhythm guitar, in Etta James' band. And I daydream that we're doing a show, and the curtain opens, and Etta's over there, and I'm kind of to her right, standing a little back from her, and I go, what would that sound like? I don't daydream about, like, I'm on stage playing this song, it's awesome, and now I can get Etta to cut it. You know what I mean? It's about the power of imagination mixed with humility, mixed with a little discipline. Um, so for film and TV, too, make sure that you're writing songs like, watch TV and find out what shows, you know what I mean? Use your kind of songs. You know what's funny? What's really popular is, you know, country music is really popular. They hardly ever use country music on big TV shows. You know why? Because they're made in New York and L.A. where everyone needs country music. It's very rare. Watch TV, you know what I mean? So if you're out in the sticks and you're watching these shows and they're using tons of indie rock, most of those people are going, oh, God, I hate this crap, because they don't like it, you know? There's a question. Related to that, with the music supervisors, and if you want to get a hold of those books, I've noticed on the internet you can buy, and you can pay pretty good money to buy, of course, the directory of those 
think most of those are, it's most of those BS. Yeah. Because um, those music supervisors, number one, they're not going to take unsolicited material. You know what I mean? You would, you're better off finding a licensing house that's legit. Um, that's, yeah, there's a couple of companies in town. One used to be called Tinderbox, now it's called Chase by Flying Monkeys. They're legit. There's one called In the Groove, I've never worked with. Um, I can't say whether they're legit or not because I don't know, but I do know that they are having some success placing stuff. I've never seen their deal, so I don't know if it's a, if it's a, a bad deal or not. Um, the other thing we should talk about, though, before we run out of time, is publishing deals and how they work. Do you guys want to hear about that? Publishing deals are not as big of a deal as they used to be because if you look at the publishing companies, their situation is kind of similar to the major labels. When I was younger, major labels, well, like look at Bruce Springsteen. They didn't sign Bruce Springsteen at Columbia because he was successful. They signed Bruce Springsteen because they thought he was good and that they could help him get to be a big star. They put out his first album and it failed miserably. I don't even think his mom bought it. Anyone in here have it? Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey. Now, well, some people have bought it, but still, I mean, when it came out, it was an absolute flop. Then he put out his second album, was it The Wild, The Innocent, Innocent, Innocent E Street Shuffle? Again, a tree falling in the forest, nobody there to hear it, nobody bought it. Then he puts out his third album, Oops, Born to Run. So, these days, if you, number one, they wouldn't even sign Bruce Springsteen now, even if they thought he was great, because record companies are no longer in the business. This isn't a, a value judgment on record companies. If anything, I mean, they have a great excuse. Hey, everyone steals music, and they do. So if you're in this room and you steal music, it's actually your fault. Um, so what they don't, they're not in the business of developing artists anymore. There's no such thing. Artist development is left up to independent producers and stuff like people like me, all right, or to the artist themselves. So it's the same thing, basically the way to get a real a record deal now is to prove that you don't need a record deal. Put out a record and sell 10,000 copies on your own, you can get a record deal. Uh, publishing runs in tandem with the labels. The major publishers, they used to sign songwriters because they thought they were good, then pitch their songs, get them more cuts and develop them, and help come up with co-writers and stuff like that. Nowadays, I think that still happens a bit in Nashville, um, because there's such a big market for songs there because nobody thinks less of a country star if they use outside material, you know, but, you know, in other areas like rock and stuff like that, they do think less of them, um, which is stupid. I mean, who thinks less of Elvis because he didn't write his own stuff? Oh, Frank Sinatra, he sucked. He didn't even write his own song. The Beatles wrecked it for everybody. Um, anyway, um, so publishers are no longer in the business typically of signing writers just because they like your song. Uh, you do, you're not going to get a publishing deal unless you already have a song out there making money and then they'll sign you because they're tired of like, hey, we can't have this guy out here making all this money without us to, you know, getting some. So they'll make you an offer and you're like, ooh, man, I don't want to wait years for that money. I can get that money right now and put my day job to write songs you know, all day long. So it's more of like playing the futures rather than actually like building something. Um, I don't mean to depress you or anything like that because of tools like the internet and stuff like that, you may not need, you, we certainly don't need publishers as much or in the same way as we used to. Um, 
So publishing deals, the way they do work is there's a couple of different kinds. There's the kind I started with and now I'm back to now. Admin, that means you own your own copyright 100%. And they just, every admin company will say we charge a 15% commission. Talk them down to 10. It's not a company out there that won't fold if you, hard, if you hold them hard line. If you actually have songs out there making money. They'll ask for 15, they'll take 10. That's what I just did with my bag. 10. Okay. Admin, that's called an admin deal, publishing administration deal. All they do is do my collections. Some of these publishing administration companies will say, offer creative services too, like they'll pitch your songs and stuff like that. My deal, but you know, it's not like they have an office full of people pitching your songs. You know, you, you get what you pay for. If I'm holding the copyright and they're only taking 10%, you know, I get a little creative help, but not a ton. My deal with my guy is common in that if he gets me a song cut because of his efforts, he pitches a song of mine to, you know, Joe Bob, whatever, and they cut it, then he gets co-publishing on it. That's the next kind of publishing deal. Look, they love me down there, you hear <laughs> Co-publishing is the most common kind of publishing deal for the last many, many years as far as where money actually changed hands and there's an advance. Co-publishing, I'll explain how this works. This is a little weird, so listen close and try and follow along. It's the way the law works, when you write a song, the law automatically cuts that song into two halves. One is called the publisher's share, and one is called the writer's share. This happens whether you know it or not, and whether you want it to or not, that's the way the law understands um, publishing. Now, this is where the math gets weird. You think of a pie being 100%, but a pie in songwriting language is 200% because what you've got here is two halves. So on a co-publishing deal, on an admin deal, I own all the writer's share and I own all the publisher's share. Okay? They just take a, com a commission, but I own the entire copyright. On a co-publishing deal, like I had with... Um, but with uh, Lieber and Stoller, that means I own this and this, and they own this. So they own 25% of the money that comes in, they get, but the way you talk about it is that they own half the publishing. Everyone's gonna assume that you own your writer's share, because it's very rare that someone sells off any of their writer, writer's share. If Prince did do that publishing deal that Warner wanted him to do, then he still would have had this writer's share. We all almost always return or retain our writer's share, unless you were like a black blues artist in the 1950s and you had like one of my forebears, a Jewish publisher. Then maybe they took the whole thing and gave you a car. But those days are kind of gone where people are ripping off songwriters in that particular way. They've developed much more savvy ways of ripping off songwriters now. So this is a very common kind of deal. They own half the publisher's share, you own half the publisher's share, you own all the writer's share. So in real life, you own 75% of the money that comes in. In publishing speak, it's co-publishing. You own half the publishing, they own half the publishing. Does that make sense? Sorry, it's so weird, it just is. Then there's something called a full-on publishing deal. Those aren't as common anymore. They still do them in Nashville a little bit. But that's where the publisher owns the whole publisher's share and you own the whole writer's share. The difference between an admin deal and a co-publishing and a full-on publishing deal is on co-publishing and full-on, typically you're gonna get an advance. 
And that's the other thing that you need to understand is just like with a record deal, there's a difference between advance and royalties. When I did my deal with Liebert Stoller Music, they gave me an advance for the first year. Now, I don't get any money, any more money, until they make back that advance. Then when they make back that advance, then it's a 75-25 split in my favor. Make sense? But if, if they never made back the advance, then you don't have to pay back an advance. They're just like, well, they'll drop you and you get to keep the money. That is the difference between a record deal and a publishing deal advance. In a record deal advance, you have to use the advance to make a record. On a publishing deal advance, you can spend it on, you know, cocaine, whatever you want to spend it on. Yeah. So for like bottom line That's just masters. That has nothing to do with uh, publishing royalties. They just they just distribute your. That's a distribution deal for your masters. Oh, okay. They might do some collection and placement and stuff like that, but it's not a publishing. They're not publishing companies. Yeah. Um, if you uh, you know register with CSAC or ask that for me and mine, uh, when I register with CSAC, I uh, get required to set up your. True. Um, they just kind of walk through the steps of setting up your own publishing company. Um, are they, is, is that uh, a another category? Is that really sort of an add-in? Well, that's just, if you're going to have any of these deals, you're going to have to set up a publishing company, but all it is is filling in some blanks like a DBA because they're going to write you separate checks for your writer's share and your publisher's share. I got checks coming to Kevin Bow, and then I got checks coming to my publishing company. And resist the impulse to come up with some cutesy name. You know, unless your name is Bob Jones, you know, don't call your company Bob Jones Music because there's too many other Bob Jones out there. But if your name is like at all unique or whatever, then, you know, my new publishing company, my old one was Beachy Music. It's, just, it's a big pain in the ass. You know what my company is now? Kevin Bow Music. <laughs> all right? Because then I'm sure going to get the money. There's another question. Well, that's a good question. What's the advantage of having a publishing deal? Well, I'll tell you what the publisher will tell you is the advantage. They're going to tell you that they're going to play some songs with Elder Clapton and Jesus. Um, the advantage for me when I signed my first deal was that it got me out of a day job so I could write music all the, the whole time. And also, it's kind of an ironic seesaw of success. If you, there's some lawyers, entertainment lawyers, who will tell you that if you the company recoups, if you ever get, uh, they ever recoup the advance and you start getting royalties, fire your lawyer because he didn't get you a big enough advance. You know, I don't know if I agree with that, but I do know that I lost a lot of money signing with Lieber and Stoller. But maybe I never would have been successful if I didn't get to quit my day job and start writing songs all day. So I'm not sure I can accurately answer that question. But by the math, you know, the best thing you could do is get a big publishing deal and then, you know, write crappy songs and fail. Then you got all this money for nothing. You know, if I never would have signed a publishing deal, I'd have 25% more money. I wouldn't have 25% more money though. I'd have 15% more money because I still would have had to pay 10% to have someone admin it, right? So um, I think the advantage is really, in my opinion, the only reason to sign a publishing deal is for the money. Because even though they say we're gonna have you co-writing with Jesus, 
There's nothing in the contract that says if we don't get you co-writing with Jesus, then something bad happens to us. You know what I mean? So anyone who says anything in the contract or makes a promise that's not in the contract, you know what I mean? No. I'm going to love, honor, obey. Well, if you do, great. But I mean, it's not like, you know, you get to kill the person if they don't. So, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of one of those things. But that's a really good question. Does that kind of answer? You need an admin deal. You need an admin deal if you have songs out there making money. That's the other thing I would stress is like, you know the first thing people in America do when they start a business? Spend a bunch of money on cards and stationery and have a RS drop a logo and stuff like that. Don't don't do any of that. And don't do don't do any don't bother joining BMI or ASCAP if you don't have any songs out there being played on the radio or anything like that. You know, take that hours you're gonna spend doing that paperwork and write more songs. This is the one point I really wanted to make today. You guys are gonna hate this. My students hate this when I say that, when I make this point, but it's very important because we're talking about art here. What do you think, anyone, what do you guys think is the main reason a, a songwriter isn't successful in this country? Anyway, because it's not getting played? Because wow, you're like the smartest guy in the world. Nobody ever says that. He said because they write crappy songs. <laughs> no, it's not a joke, I'm serious. Because this is America and like, this started in my generation. My parents' generation wasn't like this. My parents, when they went to school, my dad went to school and they had like a track meet. The winner would get a blue ribbon, the second place guy would get a red ribbon and then the third dude would get a yellow ribbon and the rest of them, the coaches say, get the hell off the field. You know what I mean? It wasn't democracy. Now, and since my generation, since the 60s, everyone gets a ribbon just for showing up. We don't want any of the kids to feel bad. You know what I mean? So we get this inflated sense of ourselves that anyone can be an artist or anyone can be a songwriter. When I was growing up, you know what they said to me? You can be president. I can't be president. I went through rehab. I'm never going to be president. I'm, I'm a Jew. It's never going to happen. And I think that it's important to remember that, that if your stuff, I talk to a lot of songwriters and they're like, oh, I write, 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 my stuff isn't getting cut. And they say, no, music business is so corrupt. And like, yeah, 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 that might be true. But look at your stuff. You have to be honest when you listen to your own stuff. And you have to rate it against, if you write music like um, James Taylor, and it's not as good as James Taylor, don't, don't send it out. That's the other thing that blows my mind is people say, I want you to listen to my music. You know, I want you to tell me what you think. Now this, this, I mean, this one's, you know, it's not really finished. Why would you do that? That's like showing up for a, a first date with someone that you really like, and you're like, you know, dirty, and you know, oh man, I know I meant to change, but I just didn't get around to it. So what's all? You know what I mean? I mean, you only get one chance to make that first impression. And so before you worry about marketing and sending stuff out and setting up a Facebook page, that's the other thing that kills me about bands is they, they, they spend so much time promoting and stuff on Facebook and stuff like that when, man, write and rehearse. Get those hundred crappy songs that you're going to write first out of the way. You know what I mean? And it's, this takes a lot of work. Again, if you write a hundred songs and only five of them get anywhere, then you're an amazingly successful. Another question? Yeah, some years ago I, I had a, a CD that was number one with a bullet. Songs that had been demoed. And basically, when they were played by bands that made them famous, the demo sounded as good. I mean, they were they were really, really targeted. 
and, and produced in a way that somebody didn't have to use their imagination. So what's that? So is the question, how important is, is demoing a song in that, in that way if you're trying to get it into somebody's Well, it doesn't have to be expensive, especially these days. It depends on the style of music. But I think one thing that, the most important thing on whether someone will like your song or not is the songwriting, no matter what style it is. And then, you know, is the song well written? There's only four things in a song, melody, beat, harmony, and lyric. There's nothing else. Everything else is production or performance or something, but those are the only four elements in the song. So it has to be a great song, and I think the second thing that has to be great is the vocal for people to get it. And that doesn't mean it has to be Mariah Carey great. If it's an indie rock thing, it can be a totally weird vocal. If it's supposed to appeal to Guided by Voices fans, then you can sing like that dude, Perry Ubu or whatever. You know, but um, the vocal has to be, you know, the other thing that David Z gave me some great advice, he said, never play a demo for someone where there's this one part of the demo where you're playing it for a, a, a big time dude or whatever, and there's this one spot in there where you have to go <laughs> to cover up something crappy. You know what I mean? Make sure he calls them cough songs. He was really kind of a mean guy, but he had really good advice. One time I played him a song, a demo of a song that he actually really liked, and I made the demo way too long. I used to, before Pro Tools, there was never a ruler view on analog tape where you can see how long your song was, so I have no idea. And it was a really great three-minute song that I did for like five and a half minutes. And he's listening to the demo and it was like going on and on and on. He'd asked to hear it because he heard me play it live and he liked it. And after about four minutes in, he looks at me and goes, Ooh, we like this so much. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to make sure that that's not happening. Leave him wanting more. And another question? I'm sorry, it was Melanie Beat Lyric and what was the other thing? The what's, who's that? Oh, harmony. Oh, melody, beat, harmony, lyric. It's just a good idea to not fool yourself. You can, you know, polish a turd and thinking it's a great song. It's got a, There's only four things in there. That's all there is. The rest is the rest is production and performance. You know what I mean? That's a, that's the only four ingredients in a song. You don't even need all four of them if it's an instrumental or you know if it, it doesn't have any harmony or whatever. Yeah. Would you care to comment on the uh, do-it-yourself? The DIY people like Bonnie DeFranco and the Doom Tree Collective. My heroes. Do you have any uh, input on people that are kind of sidestepping all of the stuff you've been talking about? Well, they're not sidestepping all this stuff. They're still doing, they're probably not signing, probably not signing publishing deals. But my last record and almost all, if not all, of the acts that I work with right now are completely DIY. My last record, I put it out myself. I have, um, it, you know, the major labels are still good at some things, like if you're a, you know, One Direction or Katy Perry kind of music, then it would be dumb to do a DIY thing or sign with some little indie label. But if you do what I do, not that anyone would sign me anyway, but I mean, if they did, they would screw it up. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, um, my world is completely DIY. Um, so I, you know, the, the thing that people forget though about DIY is, everyone's like, yeah, DIY. My students at IPR are like, yeah, the labels suck, DIY. And they think they're so punk rock right now. But the thing about the DIY is, remember the D. You actually have to do it. I started working with a local singer, a soul singer named Allison Scott, seven years ago. We formed a 50-50 partnership. And this is somewhere where none of the local radio stations will touch her. She's kind of the local Adele. The current thinks she's two cities 97, cities 97, Hates her. 
Uh, she sold 15,000 CDs. We sell out the Dakota 15 shows in a row. We sell out theaters all over the Midwest. Have a great business we've built up, totally DIY. And thank God, because we don't want to share it with anyone. We did it without their help. So I'm a firm believer in DIY, depending on the, the kind of music. But everything I'm involved in right now, you know. Any other questions? There's only one way to copyright your stuff. Uh, don't put it in an envelope and mail it to yourself or any of those other wives' tales. The, um, the way to copyright it is through the Library of Congress website. There's two kinds of copyrights. There's a copyright of the master recording, and then there's a copyright for the song itself. So if you just uh, have songwriting demos and you just want to copyright the songwriting, then you can fill out a PA form. You want to copyright these versions, these recorded versions of these songs, then you do a PA form. The other trick is don't, what is it up to now? 40, 40, 45 bucks? 35. 35? You can wait till you have like 10, 20, 30, 40 songs and do them all under one, collect, the collected works of Kevin Bow, Volume 1. Right? Don't use that because your name. But then, because you don't want to pay. 35 bucks or whatever for every title. And then when you've written another 20 songs, then do that. It's time sensitive too. Like you have to get it in right away and you have to pay a fee again. Oh, really? ADD. I'm lucky my, my publishing admin company copyrights them for me. When you, the other myth is that when you write a song, it's automatically copyrighted. You own the copyright. The only reason you do the Library of Congress thing is to register the copyright. So to protect yourself, because then you, they have it on file and you can prove, nope, here's the data on this. Anything else? I heard from somebody that uh, somebody overseas was covering somebody's song like that, and they, they said, well, good luck fighting it. You know, you're going to spend True. all this money with legal fees, and so she just dropped it. So what good was that? You know? Well, even here, legal fees. Number one, in a lot of Asian countries, they have different cultural standards for intellectual property intellectual property, kind of like in America, like we think guns are awesome and then in some other countries they're like, no, guns aren't awesome. In China, they don't really, their culture just doesn't, they don't have a tradition, a history of believing in intellectual property very much. It's not that important to them. So bootlegging and piracy is really um, prevalent there in a lot of other countries too. But in the United States, um, even if someone in the United States, chances are if you write a number one hit record in the United States, you were very likely to get hit with a nuisance lawsuit and someone calling along and saying, I wrote that song. And the sad truth is it's often easier to pay out a five to $10,000 settlement with that person. Uh, it'll be less than your legal fees fighting it. Kind of the cost of doing business. It's never happened to me, because I'm too smart for that. I write album cuts that never get played on the radio. <laughs> yeah? But most, many people who write hit songs, if it's a big, big, big enough hit, then that will happen to them. So, God bless. America. Or like You gotta clear the only way it's not a problem to clear samples is if your stuff sucks and nobody buys it. Then nobody cares. But ask the guys in uh was it the Verve? Right. Yeah. Number one worldwide hit. They forgot to clear that stone sample. Oops. What about stuff like using presidential voices if you want to do some kind of Floyd-like stuff? I think a lot of that stuff is public domain, but you'd have to, that's above my pay grade, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. A lot of that stuff is, is public, though. And again, 
keep in mind, nobody's ever going to hassle you about it unless it sells a lot. There's a million bands that have cut my songs and sold less than 5,000 records. What's 5,000 records times nine cents? You know, life's too short. Do you know if it's true if Happy Birthday's going through like legal problems so that it, so because people feel it should be public domain? I don't. About that? I don't know. But if they if that is happening, I'm on the side of the grandmas and their family. I'm a firm believer in intellectual property. If you think it should be public domain, great. Think that all you want. If you want to use it, pay me. If you don't want to use it, don't pay me. But my flip side of that is, like again, if you use one of my songs and you sell less than five thousand copies, I probably won't even send you a snotty email. You know, just because I'm not going to waste my whole life chasing down stuff like that. You know, better better to spend my time writing writing a song. I might kill you. <laughs> All right, I guess that's it. I was going to recommend a book if you guys have any technical questions about publishing but you don't want to read a big, like, lawyery book. There's a great book that my former publisher, Randy Poe, wrote. Randy P-O-E. And it's the industry standard for, and the title says it all, A Songwriter's Guide to Music Publishing. That book is it. It's short, it's to the point, it's written in easy to understand language, even quoted me in it. Um, he used my former publisher and I said, my advice is never sign a publishing deal, <laughs> just like I said to you. And we're still friends, but it's a great book and it has, uh, it has all the answers. Thanks for joining me on this special episode of Composer Quest with Kevin Bow. Again, you can find Kevin's music at kevinbow.com, spelled B-O-W-E. If you're in Minnesota, come to the next Minnesota Music Coalition event on Wednesday, October 16th. Find out more at mnmusiccoalition.org. If you're new to the podcast, I'd love to hear from you at facebook.com slash composerquest, twitter.com slash composerquest, or just email me, charlie at composerquest.com. And stay tuned because I'm going to be announcing the next Composing Quest very soon which will involve an orchestra, a choir, and Christmas. Until next time, happy composing! Yeah,